Uh, this passage is found on page 809 in the Pew Bibles, if you didn't bring your Bible. And I'm going to be reading Matthew 4, 18 through 25. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. So this passage, um, even though it could kind of be divided up, it, it shows us the three essential elements of Jesus' ministry. It just sums them up right here. This is what we see throughout the Gospels. Making disciples, message proclamation, and miraculous ministry. And yes, I tweak them so they all start with M. Sorry. But that way you can remember them. <laughs> so, we're going to look at each one in turn, um, and I'm going to try and unfold kind of what, what we see here in the text. First one, making disciples, verses 18 through 22. Notice that as soon as Jesus begins his ministry, remember last week, this was the very beginning. As soon as he begins his ministry, the first thing he does, he picks some young guys to go along with him and to learn along the way. He doesn't wait until anything else you know, happens or he's established. He just calls them, and they follow him, and they follow him throughout the whole time, the good times, the bad times. They weren't learned scribes, these guys. They, um, they weren't dedicated Pharisees. They were just common men who made a decent living from their trade and family business. They were probably lower middle class, which if you look by national standards, that's probably what most of us are, lower middle class. So that's about who they were. Uh, Peter, was, we know, was old enough to be married because it mentions his mother-in-law. But the other guys, they could have been pretty young. James and John, uh, one commentator said that, you know, they may have even been teenagers because they were still with, his, with, their, with their dad working with him. Um, we don't really know how old they were. Uh, if we take into account what the other Gospels teach, which we're not going to explore that too much, but we know that they had probably encountered Jesus before, uh, before this event. And that maybe explains some of the immediacy of how quickly they follow him when he comes and calls them. Um, Jesus speaks to them, too, notice, also on their level. He says, I'm going to make you fishers of men. You guys, you know how to fish? I'm going to teach you how to fish for men. Okay, so he engages them kind of on their level, referencing the skill that they already have. So if these guys aren't your average disciples, uh, Jesus is not your average rabbi either. Usually a disciple would go to schools and study the law from as young as 13. 
years old onward, because that was when you uh, became a man and started obeying the law. Uh, Paul might have done this. He says that he studied under Gamaliel. We don't really know all the details. But uh, eventually he would select a rabbi to learn from, and then he would follow him. If these guys had ever started that process, then they dropped out. So they did not make it. And now here comes Jesus basically saying to them, you know what? You do have the skills you need, at least in a sense. He was saying to them, you have what it takes to follow me. Only the most radical teachers ever tried to seek out their own students. We don't, you don't see that at all with the rabbis. Um, Jesus was very different in doing this. And this is a pattern more like the Old Testament prophets. Elijah walked right up to Elisha in the field and said, hey, you come with me. <laughs> right when Elisha was working. Very similar scene. So Jesus is almost acting more like a prophet than a New Testament rabbi. Uh, John 15, 16 says this, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So not only did he choose them, but he appointed them to a specific task. And this is one that they already had an idea of. Like I said, it seems like they already had the skills for it. But notice what he says. I will make you fishers of men. So something that Jesus was going to have to make them into wasn't something that they could do totally on their own. Also, he isn't just calling them to study the Bible, the Old Testament, the Torah. That's what most of these guys did. They went to rabbis to sit and study the Torah. And Jesus is saying, follow me, and you're going to participate in what I'm doing. You're going to see action. This isn't just a call to study. They were going to participate with him in the work of the kingdom. But also notice there is a cost to this discipleship. To follow Jesus meant they had to leave their jobs, which was providing a, probably a decent living for them. And then they also had to leave their families, at least to some degree. Now, obviously, they probably didn't forsake them. Peter didn't forsake his wife. We know that later. But... Uh, they definitely had to sacrifice some of that family priority, which was so big of a deal back then in this time. Um, all the rabbis put that at just the top, top priority was to, to honor your family obligations. And they had to leave them to some degree. So the next thing we see is that he shows them how to fish for people. Matthew's got kind of a pattern here that we need to see um, in this is kind of just a setup for the next however many chapters we're going to cover. But then the three verses here, verses 23 through 25, they're a summary of this preaching, teaching, and miraculous healing. And it, it's basically a summary of Jesus' ministry. And then in chapters 5 to 7, you've got the largest section of preaching, teaching. We've got the Sermon on the Mount. And then right after that, you've got this huge collection of miracles. So you see that two-fold emphasis that Matthew talks about uh, in this little summary verse. Right after that then, in 9.35-38, you see almost the exact same kind of wording. Matthew's summing it all up again. Jesus traveled around, and he did all these miracles, and he preached the gospel of the kingdom, etc. Only in that, Jesus kind of gives an appeal to his disciples. He says, you know, lift up your eyes and see the, the fields 
are ripe to harvest. And he says, pray that, that the Lord of the harvest will send out laborers. So he's kind of appealing for help in this. And then right after that, he commissions the disciples to go out and do the same thing that he's doing. He says, go out, preach and teach, and work miracles. Heal. Cast out demons. You know, he says this stuff. So it's very clear that this, this period that we're about to look at is the disciples' kind of learning period, and then they really get started doing exactly what he does. So for Matthew, this represents the kingdom of heaven invading the realm of darkness, and this is an initial taste of what it's going to look like. It's the initial taste. So the, first, or the, the second thing, after making disciples, we see his message proclamation. And this is, of course, preaching the gospel. Jesus preached the good news to the masses even though it required them to change. He didn't water it down. He said the first word, repent. You have to repent. You have to turn back to God, turn away from your sin. Repent. But he also explained it to them. We see a picture of Jesus teaching in the synagogues. So he is pulling out the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, and he's expounding the gospel to them from the Old Testament. He's saying, you know, look at what this says. So you, and there's really not that much of a difference here, is there? I mean, between preaching and teaching, because as soon as I tell someone the good news of Jesus Christ, they're going to have a question. And as soon as I answer their question, I'm teaching. <laughs> you know, there's, there's not necessarily the line that sometimes we draw between those two things. So Jesus was all the time explaining and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. He, um, the gospel is foundational to all we do, and the disciples, they, they never compromised it. They kept it. And it's very important that we realize that this message is basically what eventually led to his death. This is also what led to the death of the disciples. Their insistence on proclaiming this message, they would not compromise, they would not um, back off of it, you know. They wouldn't water it down. Eventually, it got them all killed from an earthly perspective. Obviously, God had his own designs in this. The message, um, you can't just help the needy without telling them the gospel. Uh, one time, my wife and I were actually looking to join a group that does disaster relief and this was, was what I wanted to do more than anything else. I hadn't had kids yet, so I was still kind of nuts and didn't care what happened to me. But, you know, the war zones, the famines, that's what I wanted to do. And as through my contact with them, eventually it came to light that they did not actively preach the gospel. They did not actively share the gospel in anything they did. And I was like, but you're a Christian organization. They're like, yeah, but we don't want people to be false converts so that they can get a blanket. You know, and it was, a, it was a good argument. It made sense from a, a good worldly perspective. But what bothered me was that's not obeying. We're told we're supposed to spread the gospel. We're supposed to proclaim the gospel. We're supposed to share Jesus. That's what we're supposed to be all about. Not just helping people, but telling them about Jesus. And so it just seemed, it, it struck me as a compromise. And so I gave that up, and we obviously never went with them, because here we are. So the next thing we see is miraculous ministry. 
And, you know, after what I just said, you can't just help the needy without giving them the gospel. Well, of course, if you just give them the gospel and you don't help them, then that kind of makes you a hypocrite too, doesn't it? James makes this very clear, um, if you're familiar with that. You know, you don't just say, um, you know, go be warm and be fed and then <laughs> shut the door, you know. You have to help them. You have to help them. There's, there needs to be actions to back up our words. But it's so important here, and this is where we really start to see the rubber meeting the road with, with Jesus' ministry. This is not your average Mother Teresa kind of helping the needy. This is power. This is power. Okay? The kingdom of heaven isn't just another religion. It, it shines and it conquers the darkness and it reverses the effects of sin and the fall and the curse. What are we just seeing? You know, none but Jesus can, can save us from the fall. When he came and he brought the kingdom of heaven, it started to have an effect immediately. And it started to reverse the effects of the fall and the curse as it encountered people's lives. Miracles are often referred to as signs in the Gospels because they bear witness to the truth of the message. They are proof that what we say has power behind it. That it's not just words. It's not just another religion. And notice that the effect of this, of course, is that the fame of Jesus spreads rapidly to all of Israel. Matthew gives this list of places that basically sums up all of Israel. So the three aspects of the kingdom ministry that they could be summed up as proclaiming and explaining the gospel, confirming it with miracles, and making disciples in the midst of both. So we know that the disciples followed his example, but what about us? What about us? How are we to apply what we see here in this passage? Are we supposed to see it as a model for us? Do we do what Jesus did? Are we to do what the disciples did? Well, several commentators mentioned that all the gospel writers intend very clearly for their audience to see themselves in the disciples, especially Matthew. We're going to see this more and more. Matthew's readers, this is a quote from uh, Davies and Allison, commentary on Matthew. Uh, Matthew's readers know that they too are to be fishers of men. What is true of the former pertains to the latter. This indeed is what is found throughout the first gospel a typification of the disciples. What Jesus once asked of Peter, Andrew, James, and John, he asks afresh of those reading Matthew's gospel. So if that's true, then let's look at each area and see how we apply it to our own lives. So the first one, making disciples. Well, I don't even think I need to quote this first, do I? Matthew 28, 19 through 20, go therefore and do what? Make disciples of all nations to the ends of the earth. Now, it's important that as we look at each one of these verses that talk about going to the ends of the earth, the disciples kind of thought they'd done that, but they were wrong. They hadn't. And, and nobody doesn't think that that doesn't apply to us. Of course we're supposed to go make disciples of the nations. So we continue this. We are certainly called to continue the chain of discipleship that Jesus began. Now, what does that look like? You know, I think from this passage... I think we can see certain things. As disciples of Jesus, ourselves, as followers of Jesus, we must be committed to following him as our top priority. 
above family responsibilities and financial needs. I mean, we know this. And we should learn from Jesus in daily life, not just in study, as we try to walk as he walked. And, you know, Matthew 6, we're going to look at where he says, don't worry, but trust him. Seek the kingdom first. And all that stuff that you need will be added to you. And later in Matthew 10, you know, when he says, you have to love me more than you love your father and mother. You know, we're going to see this stuff being taught soon. As disciplers, which apparently, according to uh, Microsoft, that's not a word, but I just ignored it, added it to the dictionary. <laughs> but as disciplers of others, we tend to use the word mentors. I think it's kind of the groovy word to use these days. Um, we need to teach them as we go along. Okay, this isn't just like, let's sit down, let's have coffee, let's talk about your problems, and I'm going to tell you what to do. How about they live life with us? How about they walk along with us? How about they see us in the good and the bad, you know? Maybe Jesus wasn't ever necessarily cranky, but I'm sure he was tired, and I'm sure he had to escape sometimes, and they saw him living, eating. They walked along the path with him. So we need to do that also with the people who we are discipling. And we don't imitate Jesus. It's very important that we see this. One area that you don't do what Jesus did is you don't go pick your own disciples. <laughs> I mean, I guess you could, but I don't think we should go and call our own disciples and say, hey, you, follow me, you know? <laughs> Might not go over so well. Rather, we let him do what he did in this passage. Let him call them for us. Let him call them. Who does Jesus bring sovereignly into our lives for us to disciple? Or who does he bring into our lives to disciple us? And are we really open to this? And, you know, think about this. Are you, are you open to listening to the people that you don't really like? How much do you pay attention to the people you don't respect? when they're fellow believers and they have the same Holy Spirit you do and they trust in the same Jesus you do, you know, we still like to pick our favorites, don't we? And, it, and it's true with who we teach and who we pour into. And it's also true with who we pay attention to as they're trying to pour into us. Let's be open to God's sovereign leading in this area as he brings people. Let him pick them for us, even if it's a little uncomfortable. So then, let's look at message proclamation. Does this apply to us? Matthew 24, 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Does that mean we're supposed to proclaim the gospel? I don't think too many people are going to argue with that one. We are certainly called to continue the proclamation of the good news of the kingdom. The gospel must be foundational to all that we do but we can't compromise it. We don't water it down. There must be repentance. We, we keep a strong message of trusting in Jesus only. And it's important, too, that a lot of people focus on all the signs of the end instead of focusing on proclaiming the gospel so that the end will come. I mean, this is probably one of the least debated passages about one of the signs of the end times. You know, once the gospel's been preached to the whole world, the end will come. You know, whatever that looks like, that's pretty obvious. So why don't we just focus on proclaiming the gospel instead of focusing on, 
Oh, is the end about to come? <laughs> Let's just bring it. Let's just bring it. So the last one, miraculous ministry. What about this one? This is where it gets a little interesting, doesn't it? If we're called to uh, make disciples in the same way that Jesus and the disciples did, we're called to proclaim the gospel in the same way that Jesus and the disciples did, are we called to do miracles the same way? (laughs) This is tricky. And uh, the two verses I put up here are are pretty important to, to examine because it's the same pattern. Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Did the disciples go to the end of the earth? We're going to the end of the earth. So do we need the power of the Holy Spirit to do that? John 14.12-14, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. It's one of those crazy promises of Jesus. That the first thing we want to do is qualify it. The first thing we want to do in our heads is, well, yeah, but, 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 wait. Let the power of this rest on us. Let's ask ourselves this. Why do we so readily accept the first two and not this one? Should we be working miracles? Well, sooner or later, as we study Matthew, this is going to come up, and so I asked Dan for permission to do this, and I think he was relieved that I took it. (laughs) I don't know. This is a hotly debated topic, obviously. Uh, And I will try to help us see what the New Testament teaches, but I have a lot of help. So, One of the first things I want to point out is that um, Wayne Grudem in his Systematic Theology book, it's a really big, fat book, but it's pretty easy to read, actually, surprisingly. Uh, He lists five purposes for miracles that he sees in the New Testament. One is to authenticate the message of the gospel, to prove it. Two, to bear witness to the fact that the kingdom of God has come and has begun to expand its beneficial results into people's lives. Three, to help those in need. All three of those first ones we see right here in this passage. What is Jesus doing? He's authenticating his message. He's proving it with signs. He's bearing witness to the fact that the kingdom of God is bringing beneficial results. It's pushing back the curse. And he's helping people in need. He had compassion on them. Then fourthly, we see to remove hindrances to ministry, which is closely related to the third one. Um, Sometimes people need things miraculously removed from their lives so that they can better serve the Lord. And then the fifth one, of course, is the big one that overarches all of them, to bring glory to God. When you do things supernaturally that no human can do, you bring glory to God. At least you should. So here's some other things that, are, that seem clear in Scripture. Um, miraculous works were an essential part. Go ahead and go back one, because I'm not ready for that yet. But uh, Miraculous works were an essential part of Jesus' ministry. Through and through, we see that. He clearly commissioned the disciples to do the same as his representatives. In his name. Everything they did, remember, was in his name, in the name of Jesus. 
That means they were his representatives. They were his ambassadors. Now, though it is debated, it seems clear that this power continued to be manifested throughout the early church. Um, Galatians 3.5, listen, listen to this. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now, what's Paul saying? He's assuming that there are miracles worked among them as they are supplied with the Holy Spirit. Now, this is just a church. This is just an early church. Paul also makes very clear in his instructions to the church, this one's maybe even more powerful, about how they should use their spiritual gifts, 1 Corinthians 12. Okay? One of them, one of those spiritual gifts was the working of miracles. And he says that God has anointed in, or has appointed, sorry, has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, etc., etc. So he's showing us that the ability to work miracles wasn't limited to the apostles because he's instructing the church how to deal with this. And this isn't even a mature church. This is an immature church. These guys were racked with sin and problems. And he's saying, you have all these gifts, and here's how you need to use them. So he's kind of assuming that this was standard. This was accepted. They were expected to happen. These appear to be expected to happen in all believing churches, with or without an apostle or a disciple. So what about some other objections? Well, as Grudem points out, it is important to note, it's a quote from him, it is important to note that there are some indications that a remarkable concentration of miracles was characteristic of the apostles as special representatives of Christ. We know this to be true. I mean, come on, Paul had his handkerchief that people took and got healed. And maybe you've received one of those little things in the mail, but I don't think they work anymore, you know? That degree of incredible, incredible miraculous works was obviously probably a little bit higher concentration in the apostles and with Jesus, of course. So yes, the Holy Spirit worked through the apostles in a way that he won't necessarily work through us. One such way is to write inspired scripture. Hello, we don't add to the Bible anymore. The Holy Spirit inspired the apostles to write scripture and some of those others in the early church. So the Spirit chose that, but it's so important that we know that these guys weren't any different than us. The Holy Spirit did it in his power through them. They were just guys, just people. So Grudem sums it up best, and this is the, the quote I have. If ministry in the power and glory of the Holy Spirit is characteristic of the new covenant age, which it is according to this verse, then we would expect that second and third and fourth generation Christians who are continually being filled with the Holy Spirit, who have been given a spirit of power, would also have the ability to minister the gospel not only in truth and love, but also with accompanying miraculous demonstrations of God's power. It is difficult to see from the pages of the New Testament any reason why the preaching of the apostles should, not, should come, not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So, some say that we shouldn't seek these things, though. 
Some say that we shouldn't seek these. Should we seek to see the power of the Holy Spirit move in miraculous ways? Does the church still need those five purposes that we saw of miracles? Or is the Bible and the message enough without the testimony of the Spirit's power? Well, what does the Bible tell us to do? Paul instructs the Corinthians to, quote, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. And then, quote, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church, unquote. James writes that if anyone is sick, that the elders of the church should pray over him in the name of the Lord as his representatives. And that the prayer of faith will save them. These are instructions to the church, and they're mixed in with all the other instructions to the church. So does the book of Corinthians apply to us? Does the book of James apply to us? Why don't these things apply to us? Why shouldn't we expect and seek the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives? Let's not take the edge off this, because I know you've got all these questions and all these qualifications in our minds. Just let this part of the word do its job, you know? We can have the debates later. Anybody who wants to have a debate, just go see Dan afterwards, and he'll debate you. He'll explain the rest, or maybe Michael. (laughs) So, why hasn't the church seen this consistently? If this is true, if, if I'm saying that we're supposed to be able to at least do some of this stuff, why haven't we seen it? consistently in the last 2,000 years. Why don't we see it today on a consistent basis? Because many people would argue that we do see it, that we have seen it. So there are several things, I think, that are clear. The first one is the sovereignty of the Holy Spirit. There's a good word for us Reformed people. Sovereignty of the Holy Spirit Even Jesus did not always work miracles in the same way or with the same effect, okay? Neither did the apostles. Paul says that he left people sick sometimes. Sometimes he did not heal them. We don't know why. The gifts are given to whom the Spirit wills. That's what it specifically says in 1 Corinthians 12, 11. He deals them out however he chooses in his sovereignty. And then the last thing is, Think about this, and this is just speculation on my part, but think about this. Where are these five purposes of miracles most needed? Where do we need to see the message of the gospel authenticated and the witness of the kingdom of God having power and to helping those in need and do all this stuff? Where do we see that the most? I would argue on the frontier. And to this day, most of the stories that I have heard or been a part of that have involved miraculous things have been on the mission field or at least in a country, in those countries where the church is spreading in the same way it spread in the first century. God gave these things to give power to the spreading of the church. And so maybe we don't see it as much once the church is established. It's just speculation. But the next one is not speculation. The second reason why is because of our lack of faith. As we're going to see again and again, and I promise you it's going to blow your minds, 
I'm really excited to get to these chapters, but we're going to see more and more in Matthew that Jesus acts in response to people's faith and to the degree that they have faith in him. And it's really amazing. Sometimes you see the opposite. Jesus doesn't act because of the people's unbelief. Sometimes the disciples couldn't do things because of their lack of faith. When they couldn't cast out that demon, is very specific, Jesus says to them. They say, well, why couldn't we do it? And he says, because of your little faith. And he says, if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, then you can move a mountain. So their faith is smaller than a mustard seed, which is a tiny, tiny little thing. Lack of faith. The New Testament teaches also that we all have gifts that are given to us in proportion to our faith. And that we need to exercise them in faith, believing in the power of God to work in us. And we need to pray in faith, and we need to not neglect our gift, but rather we need to fan it into a flame. So obviously these things are tied to our faith to a certain degree. Uh, George Mueller and many men like him, because he's not the only guy who ever did this, But he claimed not to have any special gift of faith. Um, If you're not familiar with George Mueller, ask me later. But rather, he claimed only to be, quote, able to take God at his word and rely upon it. And one of the huge burdens in his life was to show the church that God would back up his promises if you just believed him. And that's one of the one of the most compelling reasons he did what he did, not just to help the orphans, but to build up the church, to show the church what was possible if you just believed God. And miraculously, again and again and again, almost constantly, he saw miracles happen to help the needy. Most of them were financial, where George Mueller would just pray and people would show up with money or the food for that night's supper, and they all sat down at the table, and they didn't have any food. (laughs) You know, miracle after miracle happened. So, obviously, some people would say, and we need to address this, to say that if you have enough faith, nothing bad will ever happen to you, is pretty ridiculous, because that's denying about half of the New Testament. Because it's very clear we're all going to suffer. So they're claiming that the kingdom is already here in its fullness, which it's not. It's not here in its fullness. But it's important that we see to say the opposite. To say the opposite is to deny any power in the kingdom that is already here. It's to say it doesn't have any power. Okay? So we don't want to push it too far, but we don't want to not let it be pushed far enough. God may not always give us what we ask for in faith or what we believe in, in his sovereignty, but ask yourself, how much will he give us if we don't ask for anything in faith? How much will he give us if we don't believe in it? So the third thing we see is our wrong motives. Our wrong motives. This is pretty simple. Um, The Bible makes clear that we should seek him for what we don't have, And we need to do it with the right motives. If you're not getting it, maybe it's because you're asking for the wrong motives. Either to spend it on your own pleasures or to bring glory to yourself and not God. 
And as Jesus showed us in his temptations, this is, we just saw this in Matthew 4, trusting God is not the same as testing God. We don't go out and pick up snakes <laughs> to test God to see if he'll protect us. We don't drink poison to see if we'll survive. You know, We don't test it. We trust him. We trust him for the right reasons, to help others, to bring glory to him, to authenticate the message of the gospel, etc. And then the last thing we see is that it could be also simply judgment. Judgment for disobedience. And this is a quote from John Calvin, and this was 500 years ago, and he said this in his comments on uh, 1 Corinthians 14.32. We see our own slender resources, our poverty, in fact. But this is undoubtedly the punishment that we deserve as the reward for our ingratitude. For God's riches are not exhausted, nor has his liberality grown less. But we are not worthy of his largesse. I'm not sure what that word means. Or capable of receiving all that he generally, generously gives. So even in his day, you know, he was bemoaning that fact that look at what they had here and we don't have it. He said maybe it's probably what we deserve. Probably what we deserve. So this could be, if, if miracles attest to the presence of the kingdom, then perhaps their absence is a form of judgment upon us. So in closing, what, in order to have a vision for our town, or the nations, or how about just our lives? We need a vision of the kingdom. We need a vision of God himself. We need to be ruined for the methods of the world and long to see more of his glory, just like Moses. What did Moses ask God? I want to see your glory. I don't want to settle for this stuff. I want to see something bigger, more powerful, We should pray and seek that the kingdom would come in greater measure all the time. We need to get serious and stop playing at Christianity or just being intellectually interested because the kingdom of God is not just about studying, but it's also not just about doing stuff, doing good works. It's about the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what separates us. That's what separates Christianity from all other religions. It's not just our message. It's not just the gospel message. It's the power behind it. The power of the kingdom. The power of the indwelling Holy Spirit who has come down to live in us. Don't we want to experience that? Don't we want to see more of God? Don't you want to be ruined for the world and long for nothing but him so that when it comes time to step into heaven in his presence, it's just a, it's just a step. It's not a painful separation from this stuff that you love. Let's just pray. Father, we come before you and God, we humbly acknowledge that Our resources are dry. We have so little. 
And God, we, we, we long to learn more of you. We long to walk with you. We long to do good things. But God, how empty all that is without the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, I just ask that you would give us just a glimpse of what this really means, of what we should be experiencing in our lives, God. Um, guard us from error. Help us to know the truth, yes, and not push things too far. But Lord, let us not try and explain it away. Help us to not try and dumb it down or dull the edge of the blade. Let it do the surgery it needs to do in our hearts and change us. And Holy Spirit, we ask, we ask for your power, even though it might be really uncomfortable. We ask for that, and we trust you. In Jesus' name, I pray.